Hello there. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Jonathan Edwards with pureandsimplebible.com. And I am thankful. I say it every time, but it's true. I'm thankful for the time we have together and for another opportunity to study the Bible. Now, today it's just me, no guest. I do have one recording that I still need to edit, and then it's an open field. So I got to start recording again. This summer, if you're listening to it in real time in 2021, I've had several gospel meetings that have taken me away from home, and I'm still in school. So there's all the awful reasons for why I have not recorded and been diligent to give you new episodes, but I pray that you would please be patient with me. And so today I'd like to uh, share a study where it's just us, and even though it's not a conversation per se, I hope that I ask questions that you might ask and that we will together um, accomplish maybe what we get to uh, normally work through whenever I have a guest in studio with me. I want to talk to you today about doubt, and I want to deconstruct doubt. I want doubt to be given its proper place instead of this um, exalted place that I feel like doubt is getting in many religious circles. And so the title of the study, if we had one, would be called Deconstructing Doubt. And this comes from uh, maybe a lot of different sources. Obviously, the Bible is the main source, but there are other apologists that I listen to. I like to listen to their podcasts and read some of their materials. And, and so I wish I could tell you this is original, but the sense of urgency is. I, I, my heart goes out to young people who experience doubt for the first time. I remember what it was like uh, nearly 20 years ago whenever I had some of these lingering doubts. And, you know, I'll let you know this. Preachers aren't robots who uh, just run on faith and never experience doubt ever again. At least this preacher isn't, because I, I do. There's times when I have doubts and struggles, and I have concerns and questions, and I, I, I try my best to work through them instead of letting that doubt fester and linger. So whether you're young and you're going through some tough times for the first time, or whether you're young at heart and uh, you've been through life several times or uh, been through the life cycle, I guess, several times of, of strong faith, weak faith, strong faith, weak faith, and you feel that extra burden of guilt by saying, you know what, I'm too old for this. I shouldn't be having this doubt. I shouldn't be having this concern. Well, my heart goes out to you too, and I hope that this Bible study will be helpful. Now, where I want to begin with you is in the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verse 31. And I'll maybe uh, lay the scene for you as uh, we think about this scripture. So this is when Jesus is walking on the water to his disciples who are in a boat, and uh, Peter is the only one out of the 12 that's willing to step out. So first off, he had great faith. I, too often we focus on Peter's weakness, but you know, he stepped out and his eyes were fixed on Jesus, right? And uh, even with his clothes whipping against his skin and he's, you know, probably squinting from the surf that's blowing in his face and his eyes are fixed on Jesus and he begins to walk. I mean, can you imagine that? That's just, it's amazing. 
and yet his eyes are fixed on Jesus until suddenly he notices the wind and the waves. If you're familiar with the account, he starts to sink, and this is due that his eyes are no longer fixed on Jesus. And so in the Bible, Matthew 14, 31, it says, Jesus immediately reached his hand out and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Now, if you're like me, you read that scripture and you immediately want to move to application and, and make it personal. One where, you know, the storm is like the, a metaphor and Peter's sinking is our own faith. And I don't mean to be too blunt, but that application's wrong. It misses the point. And, and I, I do hear from time to time people use it in that way. And I suppose that it's not doing too much damage. But the point of, of this account in the gospel is that Jesus had miraculous power and that Peter, although witnessing that power, did not have enough faith to believe that he could walk all the way to Jesus. And so the misapplication is enhanced when we meditate on this and, and then we ask ourselves that question, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And, and suddenly there's this great guilt because we have doubt. Doubt can really be a dirty word in the local church community. And we take this Matthew 14 and, and other scriptures as well about doubt, and we, we, we burden ourselves with this idea that uh, doubt implies weakness, it implies little faith, and, and since no one wants to be weak and no one wants to be accused of little faith, then if someone doubts that the anxiety that is created through being vulnerable or maybe it's the arrogance, you know, the arrogance of, of self-reliance, that it, it means that one cannot let someone else know that they are struggling and, and that they have doubts. And because they can't talk about it, it just grows worse and worse until they leave. And that's just tragic, that it gets to the point where instead of talking about it, someone would prefer to leave instead of work through it. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, God's people aren't perfect, but his church is, right? We serve a perfect Savior who died for a church that he washed with his own blood, so the church is perfect. The people that make up the church, however, are people who at one point in their life were doing wrong, and thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, we've been washed clean. The problem is that many times uh, we look at others, and when they fail us in the church, we assume that the church is no longer perfect or that Jesus isn't perfect. And we place the blame from these fallen creatures on Jesus. And brother, sister, friend, I want to tell you, <laughs> I don't use the phrase brother, sister, friend very often. I use it as a typically in tongue-in-cheek with friends. But brother, sister, friend, I want to tell you that we really do a misservice uh, to the Lord's church when we look at the faults of others who maybe couldn't help us in our doubts and then blame it on Jesus. I'll tell you right now, this preacher is not perfect. And if you were to assign my problems to Jesus Christ, then of course you're going to find that the church isn't perfect. So don't do that. Please don't do that. We can serve a perfect Savior 
We can serve in a perfect church that's made up of imperfect people. So uh, besides maybe that little rant, um, I have three questions that I want to accomplish with you today. And I'll go ahead and tell them to you right now so that we can um, work through them together. What exactly is doubt anyway? And uh, number two, what scripture can we use? What, what, what's a good scripture to help us quantify doubt, right? Um, so there's tons of scriptures that will address doubt, but what's just one place where maybe we can see it uh, working on different levels? And third, this is a long one, so get ready. How can we foster a sense of trust and truth within our local church so that when one of us does have a doubt, the others can respond appropriately? If it's okay with you, I'd like to say that question again because it's really long, but it's really important. So how can we foster a sense of trust and truth in our local church so that when one of us has a doubt, the other can respond appropriately? These are the questions that I want to study with you today. So, what is doubt anyway? Uh, if you were to look in the Bible, if, for example, in the, the King James Bible, the word diacrino that we use for doubt is translated uh, 19 times, but it's not always put into the English word doubt. You can look in the New Testament and it's translated as to decide, to dispute, to have misgiving, to pass judgment. I mean, that's kind of odd, isn't it? Well, that's because context determines the translation. And when it's used in the English equivalent of doubt, it's always talking about someone who is struggling to accept something. And that may be an oversimplification, but it is about someone who is either weak in faith or they are willfully contentious. And it takes the words around it in the community of words i.e. the context, for us to better understand what it's talking about. So let me give you an example. Let's read from James 1, verse 5 through 7. And uh, I want you to think about how you feel when you hear this verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, and that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. When you read verses like that, how does it make you feel? Should we never have questions? Is that what it's saying, that, that we're never to, uh, if we have something come up that we don't understand or may seem at first glance contradictory, we're just to bury that because the Bible says here uh, that we're supposed to ask in faith and not in doubting. No, of course, we, we understand by the context that this is a person who's willfully contentious, and they, they gen, genuinely don't believe that God is going to answer them. And they're not looking for an answer. They're just kind of going through prayer like it's this checklist. And when a person is willfully contentious in that way, then, of course, they're not going to uh, receive anything from the Lord. But what about someone who is struggling, and they're weak, and they have questions, legitimate questions, and they're trying to figure out the answers to it. Well, I think it's going to be helpful for us to maybe conceptualize doubt, and that, remember, doubt is struggling to accept something, and that that doubt can be multifaceted, or at least there's, there's different ways we can view it. So let me give you three. Number one, intellectual doubt. Number two, emotional doubt. 
Number three, moral doubt. So intellectual doubt uh, is the struggle to respond to rational questions about God and his word. Let me give you some examples of, of intellectual doubt. How can a loving God call for the genocide of humanity in the flood? So this is a person, and it, it could be emotional, but if someone is legitimately wondering uh, how is God both loving but also a God of wrath, that's an intellectual question. Here's another one. How can you trust a series of documents uh, that seems to be riddled with inconsistencies? I see all these examples of people talking about the Bible being inconsistent. So how can you trust that? That's an intellectual question. So you know, we respond to these intellectual questions with a specific type of Bible study, and that would be to answer uh, them and to provide knowledge. An emotional doubt, however, is different. It is the struggle to make sense of God's character or his word while enduring a strong emotional or irrational sentiment, right? And I know irrational oftentimes um, is used negatively or like it's an insult, like you're being irrational, right? And if we could use as much, I guess, gentleness with that, I think it's appropriate for us to say that from time to time, we may have an irrational question. We haven't really thought it through. And rather than using our, our logic and knowledge, we're using our emotions. Our emotions are getting the better of us to ask these questions. So here's an example of an emotional question. Um, my preacher, my elder, my pastor, uh, they were a hypocrite. They did something wrong, and it, it broke our church apart. Therefore, I don't, I don't go to church anymore because they, they were such a hypocrite. Right, so that person is is emotionally invested in that preacher, elder, pastor, and they, instead of seeing being able to differentiate between a perfect church and imperfect people, they have emotionally fused uh, the two concepts. Another emotional doubt might be God didn't answer my prayer when I was praying for my loved one and they were dying, maybe of cancer or some other disease, and uh, you know. If God didn't answer my question, that means he's not real. All right, so that's an emotional, deeply emotional. And we don't just toss them aside as though these people have experienced nothing. We just understand that their doubt uh, is being expressed in a different way. And so maybe the response we're going to have and the type of Bible study we have is going to be different. Here's the third one very quickly, moral doubt. Moral doubt is the struggle to accept God's word based on willful actions that contradict it, right? So I have certain behaviors that go against the Bible. I recognize they're against the Bible, and instead of me conforming my behavior, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, cast doubt on what God has said. You know, somebody that says, you know what, I really like to party. I want to go out, and uh, I love drinking. I love getting drunk. I love being with my people at the party, and so I you know, Jesus changed water into wine, so that means I get to do whatever I want, right? That's a moral doubt. It's not very rational, and uh, it, not necessarily as emotional, but it's it's just moral. Someone is interested in doing what they know to be wrong or justifying something so that they can make it right. Well, the reason that we're going to take time, I hope maybe you've conceptualized that with me. The reason we take time to consider that not all doubt is the same is because the way we respond is not always going to be the same. 
you know, I've I've preached this at a few different churches, and I've told people that there are certain times where it may call for Bible study, and there are certain times where it doesn't. And I think I have grown to a place where I would say this. I think there's always a time to open up the Bible, right? And so any time that someone has doubt, whether it's intellectual, emotional, or moral, the Scriptures are always going to be able to, to uh, answer questions way better than our own opinions. But the Bible study may look different, right? So in, in an intellectual doubt, that means that uh, it may take a series of studies for you to work through some challenging questions with someone. Whereas with an emotional doubt, it may not be a deep theological Bible study. It may be that you are experiencing a time of mourning with that person, a time of prayer with that person, uh, where you are manifesting Christ's love just by being in their presence. They've been shaken to the core, you know? And so the Bible that you use may be for comfort and hope. Whereas with moral doubts, frankly, it may be a little saltier, right? And you're rolling up your sleeves and you're using the Word of God to confront and rebuke and to implore this person, please, to change and repent. And, you know, sometimes doubt, it's a mixture of these three. It can be interconnected. But I'll tell you this, remember it. All of these share one thing in common. We have to respond to doubt. We don't let it linger. We don't let it fester. And so what scripture? Here's that second big question. What scripture can we look at to help quantify doubt and what our response can be? Now, I think one of the clearest teachings on doubt is in the epistle Jude. So Jude is the second to last letter in the Bible. It's a fascinating letter. It's worthy of of long and deliberate study. You can read it in in less than five minutes, and you can study it for days and days and days. And uh, so just to give you maybe a moment of context, the main source of contention is uh, this group of ungodly believers, these false teachers. They, They had once been part of the church, and now they have left or are leaving, and they're trying to bring others with them. They're trying to pull people away from the church. And uh, they're having a lot of influence on those who are still remaining. And so at the close of this little letter, Jude turns his attention to uh, Christian behavior and service towards those who are presently being influenced by false teachers. I want you to listen to this uh, group in Jude chapter 1, verse 20. And he begins by talking about how we can build up ourselves in the holy faith. You've got to take care of yourself first before you're able to take care of others. I've used this example many times. Maybe you've heard it too. Maybe I've used it on the podcast too. Um, But it's like when you're in an airplane and you're riding with a minor and the oxygen masks come down from the ceiling and they tell you, you've got to put yours on first before you help uh, the person you're riding with. And I know moms, especially moms, moms and dads out there are like, no way, there's no way. I would always put it on my child first. But the reason you put it on yourself first is that if you have issues and you lose oxygen, then you're unable to help a child, right? Because you're fumbling to get theirs on and maybe uh, you run out of time and then both of you are are in danger. Whereas if you focus on getting your oxygen mask on, you can breathe and then you're able to help. So it is spiritually. You've got to build yourself up first in the holy faith and using this personal success strategy that we're about to read You can then turn your focus to others who've been influenced by false teachers. So listen to verse 20. It says, But you, beloved, 
building yourself up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Okay, so that it's easy to just hear a Bible verse but maybe not chew on it. So we're supposed to build ourselves up in the holy faith. How do you do it? You pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love, and wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Uh, that's a whole nother study. But I just want you to think about how important it is to build up your own faith. Now, with that in mind, Jude then turns to people who are being influenced by false teachers, people who uh, they're sowing the seeds of doubt into the hearts of believers, and he puts them in three categories. Verse 22 says, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with sin. Okay, now what does it mean to have this group of people who are doubting, right? And they're in various levels of doubt. Well, I want to read a quote to you if you're able to listen to Old English. It's from Adam Clark. He's a a commentator from years and years and years ago. But I really like what he said because it it helps validate this idea that that not everybody's doubting on the same level, right? So listen to this, please. He says, Ye are not to deal alike with all those who have been seduced by false teachers. Ye are to make a difference between those who have been led away by weakness and imprudence and those who, in the pride and arrogance of their hearts, have separated themselves from the church and become its inveterate enemies. Ooh, I like that. Now think about it. It goes along right with what we said. You remember the definition of doubt is someone who is struggling with something. And we broke it into two groups, those who are weak in faith and those who are willfully contentious, that they, they're, they're interested in kind of moving beyond the word. And so Jude is writing to three types of, of believer who are struggling. And uh, we're going to look at them in reverse order from the way the Bible mentions them. Uh, I want to start with the last one in mind, which said, Show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained with sin. What sort of person is that? That is a brother or sister who has fully embraced error. So the question is, how do we respond? Well, we show mercy, and we are clear about what the Scriptures teach regarding sin. It says we're supposed to show mercy with fear. This person has forgot the fear of God, the wrath of God, the judgment to come. Perhaps they have been so inebriated with God's grace that they now expect his grace to cover their unrepentant sins. And and I'll tell you, sin will always be sinful no matter how it's repackaged. And so we're, as it says in Jude, we have to hate the garments stained with sin. We are going to be merciful. That means we're not going to blast anybody. Um, we're not going to show them hate and be hateful and relish in getting to rebuke them, but we are going to, in no uncertain terms, tell them that we don't approve of their deeds. A great scripture is Romans chapter 132. It forbids us from approving sinful practices. Okay, so uh, that first group, we show mercy with fear, hating the garment stained with sin. What about the second group? The second group in Jude received this admonition, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Well, what sort of a person is that? This 
is a brother or sister who is in danger of giving in to erroneous teaching and or sinful behavior. So how do we respond? Well, there is no time to delay, right? This, it's saying this person is like someone in a fire. And when someone's in a fire, you've got to get them out. And so it may hurt and it may be awkward, but there is immediate danger. We have the opportunity to keep them from getting burned or severely burned. And so we've got to get them out. I think a great scripture is uh, Simon in Acts chapter 8, 9 through 24. He was a believer, but he was in the fire. And Peter and John, whenever they came and Peter rebuked him, Peter's rebuke was to snatch him out of the fire. Okay, the third one, it's the first mentioned in Jude, but the third one what we're talking about was the phrase, show mercy on those who doubt. And this command may appear to be the clearest. You know, we're just going to show mercy. We're going to be kind to those who are doubting. It's actually the most complicated phrase to translate. I didn't know that till I started this study. But um, a lot of the, the men, the scholars that I read on this, uh, they really had kind of a debate going on amongst themselves in my mind. And on one side of the debate was that people see this doubter as somebody who is just simply weak from the hard questions that are asked by false teachers. And so showing mercy means we got to teach them. And the other side of the debate are people who are saying these people are willfully contentious because they're listening to the false teaching and they need to be reproved. And so whether this person who's having doubt is weak or willful, here's the big question. How are we supposed to respond? Well, the Bible says we respond by showing mercy. Now, mercy can mean a lot of things. And it's easy for me, and I'll just use myself, because I naturally don't like confrontation. I'm always looking to find ways to get out of confrontation. So if somebody ever, maybe they've wronged me and they come to me and they say, you know, hey, Jonathan, I'm sorry I did this. I'm quick to say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. When really I need to give them time to process it and make things right. They need to restore themselves to me. And I'm, you know, on the reverse of that, I'm, I'm really am quick to try to make things right and, and try to restore it. But maybe there needs to be time for them to process the hurt that I've given. So it's easy for me to think that mercy is pity and concern and gentleness and compassion. But here's something else that mercy is that maybe we don't think about. Mercy does not permit sin. And it does not permit the person to remain in sin or to remain in doubt about what the Bible teaches. You know, in this passage, we have brethren who have either embraced sin, are about to be burned by sin, or are at least struggling with the questions that could lead them to sin. And so our mercy is to give one another whatever the tool may be, but the tools to overcome doubt and the sins that follow it. Right? That's mercy. And so it leads me to this final and very important question. How can we foster a sense of trust and truth within our local church community so that when one of us does have a doubt, the others can respond appropriately? Now, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. The title of, of this study is Deconstructing Doubt. And I chose that title specifically because there are many around us 
who are using the phrase deconstructing faith, and they deconstruct anything. Uh, we live in a postmodern culture that uses deconstruction as a means to break down anything that they feel doesn't fit their worldview and then rebuild it in their eyes and in their own image, I might add. And as a result of that faith, something that is objective and, and uh, true for everyone does not fit that worldview, and so they, they want to deconstruct it. And uh, that really bothers me that a lot of religious leaders even are deconstructing their faith to the point where a lot of them are agnostic and that they, they just claim that they don't know anymore. And uh, what we're going to talk about this more in a bit, but I wanted to seize the phrase deconstruct. And I wanted to deconstruct doubt because at the beginning of the study, it could be, you know, I hope somebody up there who is listening to this, maybe you had doubts and you saw the title and you thought, oh, good, this will be helpful. And, and what I hope that is that even though I haven't answered any specific question, you know, like we haven't talked about how a loving God could do this or uh, how God's justice would also permit this. We haven't answered any specific questions. But I just wanted to deconstruct doubt itself and to show you that doubt can be a great number of things, that a doubter can be a great number of, of persons. And here we are at this final phase of deconstructing doubt where we recognize that in order to overcome it, we have to foster trust and truth. And in our local church community, I, I guarantee you there's going to be a doubter. And... Uh, it may not be you, listener. So um, you might be that type of person who's never doubted that there's a God. You've never doubted that the Bible is completely authentic. You've never doubted the gospel. And you've just gone through life with this very clear, strong faith and more power to you. I, I don't want people to feel like they're, they're left out because they've never doubted. <laughs> That's not the message to be taken from this. But I imagine that in your congregation is someone who at one time or another has had a question. And so I want to empower those who are strong in the faith, and I want to deconstruct doubt for those who are weak in the faith and help them see that doubt is something that can be worked through because we can foster trust and truth in our local churches. So I got three ways we can do that. Obviously, there's, there's probably more, but here's a great start. Okay. Number one, we can foster trust and truth by making space for hard questions, okay? So in our local churches, um, not necessarily, I'm not advocating that, that our sermons just challenge people's faith with hard questions constantly. I think there has to be a, a variety of teaching where we are practicing uh, the basics. Maybe people are getting Christian, Christianity 101. Uh, there's times when it's very gospel-centered. There's time where it, maybe it's very um, focused on hard questions that we can work through together. When we foster trust and truth by making space for hard questions, I guess I'm, I'm primarily thinking about after services are over and the relationships that we have throughout the week. Do we have the ability to call someone or to talk to them after services and say, hey, I have a question about this, and it just doesn't make sense. And maybe it's a question about any number of things. It could be about communion and why we commune the way that we do, why we dress the way that we do, why we speak the way that we do, all the way to these basic questions of 
uh, how, can, how can we know that God is real? How can we know this document is valid? It's good to have questions and to ask them. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. All of these questions are going to find their way back to the gospel. And obviously Jesus in Matthew 7 is talking about his kingdom that's coming, this new spiritual kingdom, the church. And, and uh, he's asking his people to ask and seek and knock. And you may have questions that are very difficult, but if the founder of our faith is challenging you to ask them, then I hope our local churches are making space for you to ask them as well. Here's a second way that we can foster trust and truth, okay? So we're going to ask hard questions. But number two, we can foster trust and truth by not making doubt an idol, okay? So there's a big difference between making space for hard questions and then glorifying the person who's always asking hard questions and never is satisfied with Bible answers. So I, I, I talked about this a minute ago. We live in a postmodern culture. At least in the United States, I'm you know I'm premising this on my listener living in America. There are some of you around the world who may not live in a postmodern culture the way we do, but by and large, uh, our our social movements, um, the the popular culture, it seems to be all based in valuing subjective experience over objectivity. And what I mean by that, you know, if that's just gobbledygook words, is that uh, my truth is better than the truth. And so whatever I want to be true is more valid than there being some sort of universal truth for all of us to obey. And so because of postmodernism, doubt has been elevated to a position of wonder and awe in the eyes of many. And one of the, the modern crises around us is the progressive church movement. And please I, hear me when I say progressive. I'm not talking about a political agenda. I'm specifically talking about in what we might call Christendom and denominations around us uh, that follow this progressive church movement. And this movement is built on casting doubt on, on classical Christianity and classic ways of interpreting that the Bible can be real, that there is a God, etc. And pastors openly discredit the Word of God. They openly question God's justice. They openly deny hell's eternity. And so doubting for the sake of doubting is just really popular right now. It is an idol, I believe. It is an idol, and people who are becoming agnostic as leaders in their uh, movements are dangerous, right? But I'm going to tell you something. So I want you to listen to this real careful. There is no evidence in the Bible of doubt being a good and wholesome fruit that Christians should produce. Have you thought about that? I mean, we've talked about this where we're going to make space for hard questions. We want people who have doubts to feel comfortable. But you got to know that at the end of the day, doubt is not a good and wholesome fruit that we're supposed to produce. You know, Jesus certainly offered challenging questions, and he spoke in figurative language. But his intention was not to sow doubt in the hearts of his followers. He, he did not want people to walk away from his teaching going, huh, 
Yeah, I guess I really wonder if there's a God. Or, huh, you know, that thing's what Jesus said, that just makes me think that the, the whole Torah and everything else is just uh, the words of man, and uh, it's not inspired at all by God. It's just a collection of documents by these people that wanted to hold on to power. <laughs> Jesus was not interested in sowing doubt. Rather, he desired for his followers to seek the truth. And it can be challenging to pursue truth. You've got to ask hard questions. But giving up and accepting or glorifying doubt is not Jesus' way. Listen to these two scriptures. John 1, 16. For from this, his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Grace and truth. So, yes, grace, this element of free mercy, unlimited favor given by God that he'll overlook our sins, that comes through Jesus. But also that comes through Jesus is truth. And without truth, we can't understand grace. Think about that. John 8, verse 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Um. When people put doubt on a pedestal as an idol, they reject Jesus' message. And so I want our local churches to make space for hard questions. But may we never glorify doubt to a place of idolatry. Number three, here's the last one. Uh, We can foster trust and truth by cultivating a culture of confession. All right, so... Uh, This entire podcast episode is built on the assumption that that one has expressed doubt or has asked a hard question, right? Somebody has to have brought it up so that others can answer it. And if you only keep your struggles on the inside and you never reveal it to anybody else, how in the world are, are they supposed to help? How do we respond? If I have doubts and I don't communicate them, how can my brother or my sister help me through it? or vice versa. And so it is essential that we have fostered a culture of confession. We, we feel safe to ask hard questions. We know that we're not going to glorify doubt, but we also have to be able to talk about it and bring it up. James chapter 5, 15, 16. The prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sin, he will be forgiven. And therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power and it is working. So, we have to have a culture of confession. People who are willing to confess their sins, specifically what they've done. People who are willing to hear it without judgment. Uh, A culture that recognizes the speck in another's eye versus the plank in our own. These are, are healthy ways that churches can prepare themselves for doubt whenever doubt is present. And so if you have doubt in your heart, you need to talk to someone. And the questions that you may be asking are ones that others have likely asked. I have said in the past, I'm 99.99999 repeating percent sure that the questions that you struggle with and that you doubt have been asked by somebody else. I'm willing to move that percentage to 100%. Because in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says there's nothing new under the sun. And for thousands of years, people have questioned 
gen, uh, genuinely and sincerely and with love in their heart and not ill will, but they've questioned how could a good God do and then fill in the blank? Or how could God's word be and then fill in the blank? These questions have been with us. And so whether it be a foundational question, is there a God? Can we trust the Bible? What if God doesn't love me? Or what if I don't feel love towards God? Or if it's a more specific question about why we do what we do or believe what we believe, ask the question. Help us. Help us foster and grow a culture of trust and truth within the Lord's church by asking hard questions, by not glorifying doubt, by confessing one to another, and confronting and working through doubt together. Okay, that's all I wanted to talk about today. Um, you could hear this message on Brett Hickey's Let the Bible Speak program. I think I um, was on there a few months ago. He asked me to come on. and So if you want to see me wear a jacket and tie and uh, talk about this, then go over to letthebiblespeak.com and um, maybe do a search in the, the sermon catalog called Deconstructing Doubt. And uh, So yeah, you could see me there. And if you're not interested in seeing my face because I have a face for radio, then go to www.pureandsimplebible.com backslash podcast. And I think I've got somewhere around 150 episodes. And the first few are definitely cringeworthy. Woo, it took a long time for me to figure out how to do this the way that I like to do it now. But you can go check those out and uh, put them in your uh, playlist whenever you're at work or you're out on a jog. Share it with people. I've had several come up. I, I just got back from the sulfur meeting here in 2021, and I had people who came up and talked about how they'd, they'd put the, the podcast in their playlist while they were at work, and they're able to kind of go through several of the episodes across a, a work day. I thought that was really cool, and it was encouraging for me to hear it. So I want to pass that along to you. It's a great way to um, minister to other people. You can share this episode in a text message using the, pl the platform that you use, like Spotify or Apple Podcast or SoundCloud, and you can just do, click the little share button and then send them a text. If you know somebody who's doubting and uh, you're not sure how to begin, maybe this is a great episode to share. So anyway, I've talked long enough, and uh, I'll just tell you this. God loves you, and I do too. And I really look forward to talking to you next week, Lord willing, hopefully with a guest. It'll be more of a conversation maybe than this one was. But I'm glad you were with me today. Talk to you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story. A story that is true. About a judge by the name of Gideon.